Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. Hey, listen, we're going to do something a little bit different on this particular episode. We had two amazing shows in Portland, Oregon, and we thought it'd be interesting this time around to give you the feel for what a live show of Risk feels like through and through. So no music and all live show. But before that, let me talk about our upcoming live shows. On April 26th in Los Angeles, we have Tim and Eric's Tim Heidecker. Uh, comedy genius here, and he is working on a stunning story. That same night in New York, April 26th, at the pit, we will have Morgan of Morgan'sFunny.com. On April 28th, at the Linda Theater in Albany, New York, we are planning an amazing show. Please come out for that. And the very next day, April 29th, we'll be doing a storytelling workshop in Albany. Learn more about that at thestorystudio.org. And our amazing deal that we have with AdamandEve.com just got a little bit better. With any order, you get three free adult DVDs of your choosing. You get to choose from thousands of titles in every genre. The deal is you go to AdamandEve.com, you choose one of 18,000 adult products. You're going to get 50% off that item plus the three free adult DVDs of your choosing, plus a free mystery gift and free shipping. It's ridiculous. What a juicy deal it is. And now you can also shop on your mobile phone at adamandeve.com. You just have to enter the offer code R-I-S-K at the checkout. Now let's hear some of these Portland stories. This is not all of the stories that were told in Portland. We'll have some of those later, but this will give you a good idea of what a real Risk live show feels like in continuum. Now here's the show, motherfuckers. I am 
am so um, discombobulated and disoriented. I have never done a two o'clock in the afternoon show in my 42 years on the planet. So thank you for coming. Every one of the people telling stories today is supremely hungover. And the idea is these are the kinds of stories that you would tell to your friends, like late at night, like over drinks. Basically, the whole thing started because I thought, where is a show where I can tell that story about the time I brought that guy home and he made me tie my shoes to my balls? That's why we're here. If I had never strapped those strings about my testicles, we might not be here right now. So it's very exciting. We always tell people nothing is inappropriate. I had someone who wanted to pitch a story for the show very recently who said, would it be inappropriate for me to tell the story about the time I vomited into my girlfriend's vagina? I said, that is so appropriate. (laughs) But we also have very, like, emotional stories. We've had, like, very, very serious stories as well. So fans of the show kind of love the way that it can, like, go in any direction and catch you off guard. The first person I'm going to bring up is very dear to us because... Her show was one of the inspirations of this show. Uh, She is one of the co-creators of the show Stripped Stories that plays at the UCB Theater in New York and in Los Angeles. And she's just a dear, wonderful lady. She's been on our show, on our podcast a couple of times. Please welcome Julia Rotzi. Thank you. So my mom is extremely clean. Um, We couldn't have a dog growing up because dogs are dirty. We couldn't wear shoes in the house because shoes are dirty. And we absolutely, under no circumstances, could sit on a public toilet seat. That was like the dirtiest of the dirty. And growing up, whenever we would go to a, a restaurant and I would get up to use the bathroom... On my way back, my mom would literally like interrogate me across the restaurant. My mom is this Italian immigrant. You'll figure that out by the accent. But um, she would yell across the restaurant. She'd be like, Hey, Julia, did you do poo-poo or pee-pee? Because if you did poo-poo, I know you touch. Like that's... And she would scream it. And I'd be like, Mom, I'm 14. And I did pee-pee, okay? Don't ask. Like it was just... And I always thought this was like a, a, an Italian thing, but I just realized it's kind of just a just my mom thing, I think. And when she would get really uh, stressed about toilet seats, um, she would turn to alcohol, um, <laughs> rubbing alcohol. She brought it to every hotel room we ever stayed at, and immediately when we checked in, the first thing she would do would just rub the toilet down, and she would just sit there and just clean it and clean it. And I'd be like, I'd walk in, and she'd be like, can you believe not everybody does this? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're at Disney World. Um, we should be outside enjoying this. But, but to her, Disney World was the most magical place on Earth, um, not because of the Epcot Ball or the castle, but because uh, Disney World, when we went in the late 80s, was the first time that we found a place where every bathroom had toilet seat covers that you could pull from a little dispenser. 
and oh my god was my mom thrilled like that was her favorite ride at Disney World was just like pulling them down and shoving as many as she could in her purse as it is my souvenir you know like she just loved them so growing up with that I out of spite and rebellion would oh I always sit on toilet seats like I just like sit and rub and I'm like yeah give me that disease like I just it was like my way of acting out and I also I can't put anything on the toilet because like not only did I grow up with the toilet seat covers my mom also we have the plastic on the couch Um, my lunch was always wrapped in multiple plastic bags my mom even sometimes put plastic on the plastic fruit that was in the fruit bowl Um, like I think if she could she would wrap the whole family in plastic and just wrap us up in saran wrap so and I've said to her before you know you might you might have OCD. Like, maybe. I don't, I'm not a doctor, but you might. She's like, Julia, I am not crazy. I am a good mother. And I'm like, yes, you are a very good mother. I do not have a problem with your mothering, and you are not crazy. What I do have a problem with is the fact that I'm now your daughter that has a little OCD. And I don't use it for useful things like cleaning. Like, I wish, at least that's useful. I use it for things like finding validation to see how many people retweeted my tweets. Like, that's where my OCD... <laughs> If I used it to clean my kitchen, I wouldn't have cockroaches. You know, like, it's just... So she's on to something. At least she's useful. Um, So growing up this way, you can imagine my horror and fear that I felt when I got head lice uh, at age 28. (laughs) Um, Yes. Uh, I wasn't allowed to go to camp because camp was dirty. Uh, So I got head lice at 28... Um, this is a totally different story, but I was married, I was depressed, I was living in Boston, but I was traveling down to New York every weekend to escape my marriage, and I'm now divorced, it was great. And um, <laughs> I would take this, the Chinatown bus, and I'm guessing I got head lice on the Chinatown bus, and God was punishing me for being a horrible wife, but I got it, I think on the bus, I don't want to think I got it from my friend's air mattress, we'll just say I got it from the bus. And so... My head started to itch, and I am known to get a little dry scalp, I'll admit, and nothing to be ashamed, dandruff is not a sign of being dirty, okay? Okay? And so I was like, oh, it's just, it's just dry scalp. But it was really bad, and I just happened to have a doctor's appointment the same week that I had this really itchy scalp. So I go to the doctor, and I'm like, hey, my dry scalp is out of control lately. Can you, like, is there like a special shampoo that you can give me? And my doctor looks at my head and just totally nonchalantly goes, oh, that's not dry scalp, that's lice. I was like, what? Like, I, like, I'm gonna peel my skin off. I was like, wait, what do you, what? And she goes, oh, here, I'll show you. And then she picks the lice out of my head, puts it under a magnifying glass. So the lice was like, like that. Like, you know, in the Raid commercial when it's like, but it was lice. And there was hundreds of them on my beautiful, naturally black hair. Like, I was freaking out. And I was like, has any, like, I don't know if you guys have ever had lice, but I would not wish it on anyone except for like my high school bully and Spencer Pratt. I'm not really into him. And maybe the Car- some of the Kardashians. But anyways, so, so she's like, oh, don't worry. It's not a big deal. <laughs> 
And she hands me a comb and the shampoo, and she's like, just wash your hair, comb it, you'll be fine. I'm like, <laughs> and I had to like get on the subway after this to go home, and I was just sort of like rocking and crying, and I didn't want to touch anyone, and I felt ashamed. And then I got home, and luckily my husband was out of town, so he didn't have to see what was going to happen. I just like ripped off my clothes, threw them away, <laughs> ripped all my sheets, like threw everything that was fabric like in a room, just shut the door. I was like, I will deal with you later. And I went into the bathroom and I like, got in the shower and I started putting the shampoo in my hair. And I, then I just like sat in the tub, like, like, like made for TV movie rape scene. You know what I mean? And just, <laughs> and uh, like a lot of like, you know, when you hold onto the door and sort of slide down, that kind of thing. And I read the box as it's in my hair and in like huge letters it says, I think you're supposed to like only leave it on for 10 minutes. It's like, do not go over 10 minutes. Can cause seizure or death. And I was like, great. Honestly, I would love to die. Like I would, I'm gonna leave it on for 25 minutes and kill myself and this will be fantastic. And so my sister, uh, my older sister was living next door to me at the time and she just walked in my apartment. She was like, hey, Julia, are you here? And I was like, uh, yeah. And she came into the bathroom and I just like slowly pulled back like the shower door. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, don't tell mommy. And I, she's like, oh my God, are you okay? And I was like, I just, and I got out and I started combing and picking. And then I did, and this just proves to you what a great sister I have. I started getting paranoid. I was like, well, what if I like at one point scratched my head before I went to the bathroom? And now I gave myself pubic lice and that's the saddest way to get pubic lice but what if that what if that happened I've never experienced this before and so I made my sister comb through my pubes you guys that's love um she she was like it's okay and she just combed through and searched I'm like are you sure like it was I shaved it all off anyways hey guys and um it's grown back significantly and so I a lot, especially since I've been in Portland. I was just like, whatever. And um, it looks like your head, actually. So, anyways, back to my, my, my lice. And so, all clear down here, really went through the hair a lot, felt like I was in the clear, didn't die, and I washed everything. I felt really good. I was like, I'm gonna go to bed, I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna be a lice free, fantastic new woman. Woke up, head still itchy, still full of lice. So I was like, okay, there's really only one person that can help me. So I went to my mom's house and I rang the bell and I just sort of like, I had my head like wrapped in a towel just to protect it. And I had my little comb, my little shampoo and she's like, come in. And she brought me inside. She throws me on this chair she rips off my shirt and then I hand her the gloves. She's like, <laughs> no gloves, okay? And she just starts ripping, like literally like going through my hair, no comb either, and going, picking up a lice and going, ah, and throwing it and like, ah, and just throwing them across the room, like Italian swear words, just being like, ah. And I was like, don't you wanna, I'm so sorry. And she goes, oh, please, we had these all over Italy. Like this to her was fun. Like she was like getting off on this. She snipped a few pieces of hair. You couldn't even tell. I mean, she, and it was gone. It was totally gone. And when it was done, she goes, Essie, you think I'm crazy? And I was like, you know what? You're right. 
So now, whenever I go to the bathroom, I always make sure to put paper down whenever I do poo-poo or pee-pee. Thank you. Julia Rossi, everyone! That reminded me of a story I haven't told in a long time. Um, I, when I was on the uh, sketch comedy show The State on MTV in the 90s, and, and um, there were members of the group, like Michael Ian Black would, would regularly, while we were on the show, say, hey guys, let's go to the mall and get recognized. Basically, young girls. Young girls were interested in the members of the group. And I was like, well, when are the gay guys going to like, yay, we love this state. But no, I would go to gay bars. No one ever heard of this thing. I went to a, an event once where uh, it was a big, like, gay sort of dance. And a guy was... And I had just taken ecstasy, which is... I don't do well on any of those sorts of things. It always ends up being, like, me terrified hiding under covers somewhere. And uh, so it's just about kicking in, and this guy was like, uh, hey, uh, I think you're on some sort of comedy show. And I was like, yeah, yeah, the state. He was like, well, what do you guys do for that exactly? I was like, well, we write it. We're the actors. We direct it. We edit it. And we, you know, more or less produce the whole thing, the 11 of us. And he was like, yeah, I hate that show. So that was my, like, one uh, time of being recognized at a gay event while the state was on MTV. And then I started my first real long-term boyfriend, kind of almost husband sort of situation. And we we decided right from the start, purely philosophically, that it was going to be an open relationship. You know, just because we're gay and we don't have to follow the rules that everyone else follows. So we decided that was it. But for two years, we didn't act on it. For two years, we were a monogamous. Then after two years, I said to him, hey, you know what I miss is orgies. (laughs) That would be interesting. And we said from the start, we were an open relationship. He was like, all right, I'm still not interested. I'm going to stay doing the monogamous thing, but you go off and have fun. But he was a germaphobe. Right? He was always afraid of things like lice and all, and scabies and everything else. So he said, here's the deal. There's only one rule. When you go, you have to bring along a couple of things of lice shampoo and go into the bathroom when you're about to leave the party and cover your whole body in this stuff <laughs> before making your exit. And I was like, wow, that's really inconvenient. That is really hardcore, but you know what? I really want to go to some orgies. So I go to my first one, and it's at some guy's apartment in Queens, and it's really, like, seedy, and, you know, all kinds of, you know, men of different ages, and uh, um, I was about to say sexes, but not quite, races, And it was fun, it was weird, it was debaucherous and everything like that. And then I was like, all right, I've had enough, it's time to go. So I went into his bathroom. It was just a regular dude's apartment. So I'm in his bathroom and I'm like, all right, now I've got to do this. I've got to take off all my clothes and cover my body in this pubic lice shampoo. And it's awful because it burns. You can't have it on for more than 10 minutes and it smells to high heaven. And I'm like... Oh my God, I don't know if, this, if, if I can keep doing this because this rule is too difficult. Maybe I should just leave all this behind. 
And as I'm smelling and gooey and just a shiny, like monstrous mess, someone walks in accidentally because the latch on the door didn't work. And he says, oh, I'm so sorry. He's like, what the fuck is covering this guy? And then he says, oh, hey, weren't you on the state? (laughs) All right, let's keep things moving here. Uh, Our next storyteller, uh, he's one of my very favorites. Uh, He is now in Los Angeles, but we, uh, we know each other from for years back in New York. Please welcome the wonderful Mr. Baron Vaughn. Um, I got out of my car the other day on the street and I said something out loud. I went, we milked this titty. And I can't believe it's taken me my entire life to think of that pun. Like I was ashamed. I'm like, really? So far after. I mean, they, they were Jefferson Airplane, then Jefferson Starship, then Starship. All that had to happen for me 12 years after that to think of that in a city I don't live in. Anyway, I... Um, I, um, I don't feel like I have a lot of stories, and it's racial. Come with me on this. I grew up in a neighborhood where I was constantly told not to engage, not to confront people, to walk away, to keep your head down. By all means, do not make trouble, and that has served me into this day, which is why I'm wickedly paranoid. Um, I'm not as much anymore. Like, now I can sit in a restaurant with my back to the window. That took a long time. A long time, and it, uh, most, and it's most black men that I know, we don't sit, we, we watch every single exit just to know, just in case some shit goes down. And someone be like, well, this is a great neighborhood. I'm like, and that's entitlement. That's how you get stabbed. Um, but it all stems from, in third grade, in Las Vegas, Nevada, small town boy, I was a latchkey kid, so I'd be at home for two hours of the day by myself, right? And I'd just be taking care of myself. And one day I was at home and I had just recently hung out at a white friend's house and I noticed he didn't lock the door when we were inside. And I walked past the door and I looked at it and it was unlocked and I'm like, I don't need to lock the door. Nah, I'll lock the door. I locked the door. I turn around. Not five seconds went by before someone just tried the door. Like the pilot of Walking Dead. Someone just (laughs) took the doorknob and jiggled it. And ever since then I'm like... I always need to lock the fucking door. (laughs) I went to college in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, I spent two summers in Boston, a summer between my junior and senior year and my sophomore and junior year, and I was there my junior and senior year, and Boston during the summer is a ghost town. All the students go home, so you got nothing to do except hang out with hit Cambridge types. And... um, One July in Boston, a friend of mine was like, hey, it's July the 4th. Let's go see some fireworks because, you know, it's big in Massachusetts because that's where independence happened. So we decide we're going to go see these fireworks. And there's the city of Boston and then the city of Cambridge. And between the two is the Charles River. And there's many bridges that go over the river, which people stand on during July 4th because there's a barge on the water that shoots fireworks into the sky. Not a lot of obstructions so everyone can see. And we're like, let's go do this. But neither of us wanted to stand on the bridge with all of those people at the same time saying the Pledge of Allegiance or clapping, whatever you're supposed to do on July the 4th. So we're like, okay, well, let's do this because Boston University's campus is um, aligned on the Charles River. And the back of a lot of the buildings, there's like a 
skanky, skanky alley, then a wall, then a highway, then the river. So we're like, well, what we'll do is we'll go to the back of our building and we'll sit on a fire escape and we'll have a perfect view and we don't have to deal with anybody, right? So this is a girl that I, 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 we had dated once and we kissed once. We're like, this is wrong. But years later, we were friends and we were both there for the summer and we decided to do this. So we go to the back of this building and the first, it's five floors and the first floor is huge. It's bigger than the rest of the building. So we had to go all the way back to the back of the first floor, take the one fire escape. It's very important. One fire escape that goes up to the first floor. Then we walked around the gravel of the first floor to the second and third, fifth, and we got on the fire escape. We're in the fourth floor. So we're watching the fireworks while this is happening. And it was like, oh, say whatever. And um, I noticed out of my periphery, two shadowy figures. And I can't tell from the distance what kind of figures they are. And I see them come up on the fire escape, and I see one of them grab the railings and bend their bodies in a 90-degree angle like so. And then the other one got behind the first figure and started something I think is called pumping. So I was kind of looking at them and looking at the fireworks, and my brain, I don't know why, maybe because I just was talking about the phenomenon of gay thugs with a friend of mine, which is a thing, if you don't know. There's two kinds of gay thugs. They're black gay men who dress up like gangsters, and they're thuggy, and they hold hands and make out in public, and they don't give a fuck. And then there's the other ones who give a fuck, who are secretly gay and will stab anyone's eyes that sees this going down. That's what I thought was going on. Oh my God, there's gay gang members down there. They're, they're fucking on our exit. There's no way for us to get down. When we try to pass through them, it's gonna be like a gauntlet. I don't want this to happen. And I'm watching the fireworks and my friend sees me seeing this couple and she says in a voice that was just way too condescending, she goes, why is that other couple more interesting than the fireworks? And I said, because they're fucking. And she's like, no shit, really? And we're watching, we're watching the fireworks, and then the fireworks stop. And I'm like, well, we can't go. They're still fucking there. Let's wait it out. Let's wait it out. They're gonna, they had to rob somebody. They'll leave. They gotta be like, oh yeah, thug, thug life. This didn't happen. <laughs> and they're gonna leave. But then they sit, and then they start uh, smoking cigarettes. Then I see little plastic bags come out, and meals being taken out of the bag. And I'm like, now they're having a fucking picnic? These are some weird gangsters. They've had sex, and now they're like, let's have some salads. I think they'd be more upset that I saw the salad part. So we're trying to wait them out, and my friend, I think maybe I got to her with my paranoia, or she was feeling claustrophobic, because she started going, I can't stay up here. I can't stay up here. We have to leave. We're like, no, we can't leave. We gotta wait. We're gonna get killed. We are gonna get killed. I can't be up here. We're just, look, we're a man and a woman. They're gonna think that we were fucking. We were doing something. We can say we came in from the inside. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. We're gonna go out the back into the skinky alley to go back to the front. Use your fucking brain. But she convinces me to go. So we start going down the stairway, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. But then it hits me. The moment I hit, I get my foot leaves the last step, and it touches the gravel of the, sea, of the roof of the first floor, I'm in fucking character. I was like, smooth. 
because I was unaware of anything. I went with the we came from the inside story that we don't know what's going on. So I just start sauntering over with my friend towards this couple who turns out to be a straight middle-aged black couple. And they're sitting there smoking, cutting up some grilled chicken breast. And the guy looks up at me with these wide eyes. And I said, excuse me, you're blocking the entrance. (laughs) And he looks at me and he's like, okay. uh, Excuse me, uh, were you guys up there the whole time? And I went, huh? I'm sorry, I am so unaware and relaxed right now. My ears don't work. I'm completely unaware of the context of this embarrassing situation, so you have to repeat yourself, because that's how relaxed I am. But my friend was not in character. And then she said in one full voice, ruining it, no, we came from the inside, bye. So then we walked past them and go down the stairs, and I hear them giggling a little bit, because they got caught. But that's part of the fun of it, I guess. Maybe we'll get caught. And they did. They got caught. I helped them have a better Independence Day. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't realize why, why. And I started thinking about how ridiculous it was that I thought they were gay thugs. <laughs> because it was Boston in the summer. And all the gay thugs had gone home. All right, that's it for me. Thank you very much, everybody. Baron Vaughn, everyone! Our next storyteller, she's done our show in L.A., and we're thrilled to have her back. You can find her at JanineBrito.com. Please welcome Janine Brito. Hi, Portland. Hello, everyone. Thank you for that warm welcome. Um, so I, I'm sure like many folks, um, was a very uh, weird and awkward child. Um, I, I was very obese because um, starting at age five, I, uh, I, I, I liked eating Big Macs. Uh, not kids' meals, Big Macs. Um, when I got home from school as a snack, I would eat uh, condensed milk with a spoon straight out of the can. Just nom, 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 diabetes. Um, I, I was less a child and more a sphere with thoughts and emotions. Um, that's really what I was. And not even very complicated ones, mostly just like, I like ham. That was my mode of operation as, as a young child. Um, so I was really fat, and, and my, my parents worked long hours, didn't have a lot of money, so they didn't, couldn't really uh, put me into like, after-school activities or sports. So not only did I have nothing to offset my uh, terrible metabolism and eating habits, um, I, that means I also spent all of my time uh, with the woman that my parents entrusted me with. She was a, a very sweet uh, 60-something-year-old woman who was living with us uh, because she was my great-aunt and because she was a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, so that's who I got everything. That's who I learned from, was a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, she couldn't take care of herself, but my parents were like, sure, watch our child. What could possibly go wrong there? Um, 
but she was very nice. The only thing that really happened was she was very religious. Um, like the, the one thing that sticks out of my head that really messed me up about her was I, I, I used to get these nervous eye twitches, um, and I finally told her about them, and then she was like, "Oh, that's the devil <laughs> manifesting himself in your body." funny thing about telling a child that the stress twitch in their eye is Satan is that it leads to more stress and more eye twitches. <laughs> Just a vicious circle. Um, I still get them. Demonic possession, still my number one fear, actually, as an adult person who doesn't believe in that stuff anymore. Um, so needless to say, the, the twitchy fat girl was not very popular uh, in school. Uh, and the reason I was so stressed out was because my, my family was falling apart. My parents eventually divorced, um, and, and my, my mom actually started dating a new guy. And when I was 10 years old, uh, my mom was like, hey, me and Richard getting really serious. He asked us to move in with him in Scotland. Um, and so at 10, I was like, oh, great, I have to leave Miami to some place I've never been to. And I didn't want to go, uh, not because I knew, I knew nothing about Scotland. I was a child and an American child at that, so I knew nothing about other countries. Um, but the thing that I thought was like, at least home in Miami, I know why everyone in school hates me. Like, I didn't want to go to a new place and have no idea why I was being shunned. I wanted to know at least what was going on. Uh, so the week before the move, I, actually, I ran away from home, um, and my mom found me an hour later just sobbing into a basket of curly fries. It's, it's like she read my runaway note and was like, all right, let's take out all the burger joints within a five-mile radius, then we'll go to pizza, then Chinese. Oh, we'll find her. She's my daughter. I know her. So she found me, and we moved, and I had kind of a couple weeks to kind of be by myself and uh, with my comic books and my video games before I went to school. We bought school supplies. I got my little, like, uh, English private school uniform with a tie, which I was so excited about, because, uh, spoiler alert, I ended up being a big old dyke. Um, <laughs> so excited about that tie, you guys. So pumped. So pumped. Um, so I go to school, the first day of school, the headmaster, uh, Headmaster McLeod brings me in and introduces me to everyone, and, and uh, the, the energy in, in, in the classroom is just, everyone's really excited and smiling and kind of nudging each other and waving at me, and I thought, oh no, Ed, this, ugh, like any minute a bucket of pig's blood is going to fall on me. No, why are you smiling? This has never happened before. Who are you? Uh, but then we go to recess, and everyone is scrambling to talk to me. Uh, they're like, oh, you're the American, oh, you've been to the beach, you know how to swim, that's so cool. And I, like, every, like, the kindergartners already knew what my name was, and as the weeks went on, I, I realized that I was the most popular kid in the entire school uh, just because I was American. I was popular despite myself, uh, which is such a distant memory where American was a good thing overseas, but it was the case in the 90s. Um, and so it was wonderful. I, I had all these, I had all the friends in the world. I had, I had, I had sleepovers and Sega Genesis parties, and I was just like, yeah, this is the best. I was feeling so great. And then that Christmas, we went back home to Miami to visit the rest of my family. And when we tried to get back into the country, because at the time my mom wasn't married to my stepdad, uh, they wouldn't let us back in. We were refused entry, and we had no place to go. Um, and so as a last-minute resort, uh, we called my mom's parents, my grandparents, to see if we could live with them uh, in Oakman, Alabama. 
Um, so we were getting ready to drive up from Miami. And I wasn't nervous at the time because my thinking was like, oh, I was already popular once. Once you're in, you're in. That's how it works. <laughs> Clearly, this is going to be fantastic for the rest of my life. Um, and plus, they were from Alabama. I had been to Scotland, so like that was going to be my trump card this time. Um, so I get to school, and I walk into the classroom, and it's a completely different experience than in Scotland. Um, there's, there's pointing and laughing, but there's no smiling. There's no waving. Uh, nobody talked to me as I took my seat. And I just had this feeling of dread, like, oh, this is not good. Um, and then we went to lunch, and the only people that, were talk- that talked to me were clearly the outcasts of the, of the class. It was Amanda, whose father was a preacher, uh, it was the girl who already had cystic acne at 11. Uh, the girl who was so big that her nickname was Bear. Um, those were the people that were talking to me that I was sitting with at lunch. And finally, halfway through, uh, April, the most popular girl in school, because she was blonde and had a perm, uh, stood up and was like, Hey, you! And I was like, yeah. She's like, yeah, you think you're better than us because you've been places and you know things. And I was like, no, no, I don't. But I, it, people weren't convinced. It was very clear. People were kind of looking at me, giving me the stink eye a little bit. And I finished my lunch, and as, as we're in line shuffling out, to my right on the floor, I see the uneaten corner of a, of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, and the, the corners of it kind of are glistening. And for some reason in that moment, it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever seen. And I just felt vomit just quickly shooting up my esophagus. And in the last moment, instead of vomiting away from myself, I thought, oh, let me catch it uh, so that no one else has to worry about this. I don't want to be a burden on these lovely lunch ladies who work long hours. Like, that's how it was going to work. Like, it was just going to be a pellet. And I was just going to be like, bleh, up, oh, there we go, all done. <laughs> I wasn't thinking straight. So I'd, I vomited, and it ricocheted off my hands back onto me, and I was just covered in vomit in front of the whole class. And my teacher freaked out and was like, go to the bathroom and wash yourself off. So I scramble, and I, I, I take off my your fleece sweatshirt, which my sister had just given me, and I tried to wash it off. And I didn't want to throw it away because it was something my sister had given me. And I was a big old nerd, and Eeyore, of course, the depressed donkey, was my favorite cartoon character. <laughs> what? Such a surprise, awkward Janine. How is that possible? So I tried to scrub it off, and I wrapped it in as many paper towels as I could, and I jammed it into my backpack, and I sheepishly walked back to class, and I set my bag down, and we're sitting in class. And for the next three hours, the entire classroom reeks of vomit. And everyone hates me, including Bear. Um, and every ten minutes, a kid raises their hands and is like, Mrs. Thomas, can we please open a window? And she keeps refusing. This fucking bitch will not open a window and is making me sit in my embarrassment and shame and turning everyone against me. And I go home, and, and so I went from nine, six to nine months of having all the friends in the world to a year and a half with no friends at all in the middle of nowhere. Um, 
but I did leave after a year and a half. Uh, so the bright spot is, is that um, I left, I'm now a happily raging homosexual living in the Bay Area. Um, I get to turn my awkwardness into some kind of thing where people like me. Um, and those motherfuckers are still in Alabama, so I win. I win. Thank you guys so much. You've been wonderful. Let's welcome back Kevin. Janine Brito. All right, let me bring up our next storyteller, a good friend of mine from New York City. Please welcome Mr. Adam Newman. Thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me. Your city is uh, destroying me. <laughs> like, I wasn't going to say, I'm just, I'm trying to, every, like... I can't tell which way it's going to come out, but I might, I might, if I run off stage, I'll be right back. <laughs> I'll be, I'll come, I'll finish it. Uh, but your, your, your city has wonderful food, and I feel guilty because I've turned all of it into diarrhea. And it's, and, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you all know what I'm talking about alright uh, so I was in a gay porn and uh, can we get on board with that for the next 10 minutes <laughs> and here's a tip if you want to get booked on Kevin Allison's risk you should be in a gay porn um, and this wasn't like a shitty gay porn this was like this is like a good, this is, I think, the biggest, uh, most expensive gay porn to date in 2006 when I did it. It was a Michael Lucas film. Does anybody know who that is? Uh, Michael Lucas is like the. Kevin knows who that is. <laughs> My, Michael Lucas is like the, the Michael Jordan of gay porn, all right? Uh, which I, makes Michael Jordan the Michael Lucas of basketball, but I don't think he... I'm sorry, Portland. Uh, he is the Clyde Drexler of gay porn. Is that better? All right. Um, and uh, it was my first... Oh, I'm straight, by the way. Okay? Just, that's a good place to put that. Uh, but... Um, I, so this was my I moved from Athens, Georgia to New York in 2006 to do stand-up comedy and this was my first acting gig uh, and it's also for what they gave me an IMDB credit for it and so it is also my first IMDB credit and I've had, so, I've had some since but if you're not famous you're just always on IMDB known as your first IMDB credit. So if you search me on IMDB, I am uh, known as adult film genre actor Adam Newman in Michael Lucas's La Dolce Vita. And if, if La Dolce Vita sounds familiar to you, that's because this was a porn remake of a very famous 1960 Fellini film 
called La Dolce Vita, which is about a journalist in search of the good life, or the sweet life, La Dolce Vita. And the porn remake is basically the exact same plot, except the good life involves a lot more (laughs) butt-fucking. And, uh... Here's, a, here's the, like, the, the interesting backstory of how I got to be in the gay porn. Uh, I, when I moved to New York, I met a girl who did PR for a gay porn company, and she was just like, what are you doing next week? Do you want to be in this gay porn? And I was like, yeah. End of backstory. That's it. I was into it. <laughs> no questions asked. I, just, I, was, I, would, I was really interested in doing it. Uh, I thought it would be fun. I thought, I've always been really comfortable I am a, I'm moving in with my girlfriend right now. I've had my parents have caught me with uh, Playboys when I was a kid, but for whatever reason, they've just thought I was. They've my parents have like recently sat me down and said, "If you're into boys, we're 100 percent supportive." <laughs> I was very comfortable with it. I'm sure it's like you know, I'm flaily and effeminate sometimes. I guess that's why. But now, so I did the. I agreed to be in the gay porn because I thought it would be fun. I thought I could learn stuff. And I, it was presented to me like, we're, you're getting a, a part in a plot scene. You're going to be the limo driver in the gay porn. And, and that's a dream gig to act in a plot scene of a porn. <laughs> when I got told I was going to be the limo driver, I went home and wrote all my own lines for the part. I, you know, like I was, I came to set, I was like, I got all these lines, get in the back, where do you want me to park it, stuff like that, you know? (laughs) Put it in his butt, all right, uh, some of them are more straightforward than other ones. Gay forward, gay forward. Straightforward, gay forward, that's the, that's the joke. You'll use it, you'll use it. Uh... But when I, got, when I got to the set, they said, we already filmed the limo driver scene. You're now just going to be a VIP bar patron in this bar scene. And I was like, I'm, a, I'm an extra. I'm a, I'm a, I, got, I felt like I got tricked into being an extra in a gay porn. And I should tell you that as a straight person, uh, a gay porn set is not a place you want to feel like you've been tricked. Uh, but then they were like, don't worry, we're going to make you featured and you can put this dollar in the stripper's pants and you'll be fe-. And I, they let me do it and then they ended up cutting that scene, tricked again. Oh well, I did it. Uh, but everybody on the set was so nice. It was uh, everybody, all the, ex- all the other extras were all other, I'm like, like oh, sorry, I'm like taking a moment of like, all right, just uh, get through this and think. <laughs> I'm going to barf while I'm up here. I want you to know that, Portland. Uh, it feels so awful right now. I'm so happy to be here, and it's just, it's, I don't know. I've peed like four times, and I thought that was going to solve it, and it didn't. Um, this is all too much information for everybody. Um, yeah. Where was I? <laughs> yeah, people were very nice on the porn set. They were all really nice. They were all, it was all the, all the other extras were other, like, uh, super effeminate gay guys, big Michael Lucas fans, and one, one tranny, and, uh, and then me. And, they, and the, they knew right away that I was straight. 
which was so cool for me because my parents thought I'm gay. Uh, I'm, not, I'm just not like a masculine guy. And then I walk in here and they're all just like, look at this fucking man who likes pussy. I felt like I was, felt like I was representing pussy loving men and I never get to do that. And it felt good. I love, pussy! Like, that's the gayest thing you can do. I love pussy! I improvise that. You can't write that shit before you get up on stage. We'll get, a, we'll get an animated gif for the website of me doing that. Uh, but they also taught me... Uh, that's the thing, like, straight guys who have gay friends who they're close with, we get to ask them all the weird questions, that, like, uh, you know, all the, we get to learn about gay stuff. And I learned so much stuff. I learned that, are there any, I learned that I'm a twink. I knew I learned that. Does anybody know what that is? Yeah. Gay lingo? Where are, my, where are my gays at? I've never gotten to yell that before. Are there any, any gay people here? Am I I'm a twink, yeah. which I learned, which is uh, young, boyish-looking, not a lot of body hair full of cream? Is that part of it? That's what they told me. That's what they told me. I, I'm not a bear or a jock. I know that much. I learned, uh, I learned the phrase gay for pay. I never heard that before. A lot of the gay porn stars aren't gay. They, they do it for the money. And, uh, which, which I thought about and I was, I was like, that's ama- that, that blew me away when I first heard it because I was like, that's a lot to go through if you're not into it just for the money. But then I, I've thought back on like every office job I've ever had and I would gladly get fucked in the ass and never have to open Excel ever again. I think that's, that's true. Um, so next thing that happened was we went to the premiere. I mean, as, as an extra, but I got invited to go to the premiere, the red carpet premiere of La Dolce Vita. And they showed, what they did is they showed an R-rated version of the porn. And what I learned was that an R-rated version of a gay porn means only the blowjobs. That's what it means. I spent two hours in a movie theater watching, watching men blow each other, sitting three seats away from the cowboy from the village people. And at the after, I know he was the cowboy from the village people because after, at the after party, my friend was like, do you want to meet one of the guys from the village people? And I was like, yeah, which one? And then he was still wearing a cowboy hat, uh, still holding on to it. Um, he might not have been the cowboy from the village people. He might have, they might have switched later in life what costumes they wear. Uh, but he was probably the cowboy from the village people. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, that was the premiere. And then we went to, uh, they gave me a gift bag. I got a gift bag with the, uh, with the actual porn. It came with a cock ring. It came with a lot more porn. It came with lubes. This has all been sitting under my bed for the last six years. I am absolutely terrified that they're going like, to bring that show Room Raiders back. <laughs> where, like, it's just been sitting in my, under my bed. I'm terrified at some point someone's going to be in my room and just be like, what is all this? And I'm going to be like, you don't understand. I'm in it. And this, that's not going to be any, any better. <laughs> and I watched, the, I, watched I, I very quickly forwarded through the gay porn because I, I wanted to see the scene that I was in. Um, and, uh, and 
And when I, I turned on the, the DVD, there's, there's all these extra, there's bonus features on the gay porn. And they, they were all very, they were interesting. They were like, uh, that, I knew not to open fisting sequence. Like, I know what that is. Or I, I don't, I have an idea what that is. But uh, one of them was called uh, Water Sports. And I, I had no idea what that was. And I, I was like, well, that sounds, maybe they, what is water sports? Like, maybe they played water polo after, like, they all got together and played. Or maybe, like, in between takes, they were squirting each other with squirt guns. Like, I don't know, I'll see what water, spoiler alert, it was a man peeing on another man in a bathtub. That's what water sports was. That scarred me for life. And uh, then, so, after we wrapped, I took pictures with all the gay porn stars, just to, you know, scrapbook or whatever. Um, I took pictures with them. I don't, know, I don't know if you know this, you take a picture with a gay porn star, they will pull their dick out in the picture and you don't even have to ask them. They're just, I was like, hey, can I get a picture with you? They're like, sure. Like right out there. And they, he asked me, he goes, he goes, do you want to hold it, right? And I was like, that's, that's too, I, th- I almost did it, but that's, that was one step too far. Because I remember thinking at the time, I was like, if I hold his dick, that's, ba- that's basically giving him a hand job. <laughs> and I know you're like, well, you're not doing any of this. You're just holding it. You're not, but that's, saying that's not a hand job is the same reasoning as saying you, you're inserting your penis into an asshole and going, well, I'm not thrusting, so I'm not technically fucking him in the ass. <laughs> Is that too graph? Was that too much? Was that inappropriate, Kevin? <laughs> And when everybody knows what you do with pictures from your first acting gig, right? You send them to your mom. And I sent, I sent the pictures of me and the gay porn stars with their dicks out to my mom, thinking like she's going to be like, oh, these are really nice dicks. They're nice dicks. They're not like shitty dicks off the street. They're porn star dicks. These are nice dicks. And my number one son, I have a brother. I'm going to put these... I'm going to put these on the fridge. Jesus, like, please don't send me any more of your stuff. (laughs) Any more of your stuff from your skits. And so, yeah, you're supposed to walk away with something from these experiences, and what I walked away with from this, what, like the way this will probably affect me forever, is uh, I, when I went back to Athens, Georgia, a few years later to do my homecoming show, my first like, stand-up headlining show where I was from, um, I did an interview with, uh, with the, the University of Georgia newspaper, the Red and Black. I did like a 45-minute phone interview. And I, I told the kid on the phone everything I'd done since I moved to New York, all the, you know, just whatever, whatever fun shows and, and comedy things I did. And I mentioned the gay porn as like a funny thing I did when I first moved here. And when I got into town, when I got into Athens, I went onto campus and I, I got one of the, the campus newspapers. Uh, and the, the front page of the red and black top article just said, alumnus moves from gay porn to comedy. <laughs> So I will forever be Googleable as that. And in case you're wondering how much I got paid for being in the gay porn, zero (laughs) dollars. Thanks, everybody. Oh, no, I got to get all my stuff.
Adam Newman, everyone. All right, all right, all right. Now we come to our last story of the evening. I'm so thrilled to have her on. She is so dear to us. She's been on the podcast before, but this is the first time we're having her on uh, the live show officially. So it's just a thrill because she is one of the finest people in comedy today. Please welcome Ms. Maria Bamford. Very kind. I never know how to do the musical ones. This is for music. All right. So, um, oh gosh, I get nervous about telling a story, but uh, it's okay. I once asked uh, when I was about 25 years old and I was bald and I was wearing a floral muumuu and playing a violin in my act. And I asked. Uh, Emo Phillips, a comedian who I admired greatly, I said, Mr. Phillips, well, how, how do you make it? How do you make it? And uh, he said, uh, well, you keep doing it, and then you keep doing it some more, and pretty soon more people have seen you, and then, then it, eventually a lot of people have seen you. I was very disappointed to hear that uh, at the time, but now I realize it is deeply true. And uh, it is great comfort. Uh, so anyways, when I was uh, about 10, 9, 10 years old, I started uh, having suicidal ideation and uh, also having a lot of uh, OCD, the unwanted thoughts variety, uh, getting worried that I would... Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to sleep at night uh, because I was worried I was going to rape and kill my family. And uh, <laughs> it seems unlikely. <laughs> but not at the time. And uh, in order to uh, get myself to not do that, of course, I would grip my fists at odd intervals because that's what you do. And um, it works. And... Um, so anyways, I developed some other things to kind of deal with that. I uh, had sort of a, you know, uh, all-American eating disorder for a number of years. Uh, all right! And uh, I'd occasionally do sort of... And suicidal ideation is kind of like fantasy. It's like when you think about being a t- prostitute in terms of like, oh, you get to dress up and men take you for dinner. <laughs> like... That kind of suicidalness, you know, like, oh, the stewardess won't give me the whole can. Oh, 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 turbulence. I want to live. And um, so uh, I was, uh, but I, at the same time, my sister would always tease me about going insane. She would uh, tie me to my bed and say, if I got out, that the men in white coats would come to get me. And, you know, I mean, there's some, there's uh, mental illness in my family. My aunt uh, has manic depression, and uh, every 10 years or so, she'll uh, uh, go in a blonde wig and a bathing suit looking for angels or... Uh, once she, it's, I like mania because it's always in the realm of possibility. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you should call the Pope. <laughs> Somebody should get on that. And um, 
Anyways, but uh, I'd always been sort of worried about that, you know, whether I'd go off the rails. But I never felt like I had totally gone off the rails. Like, I I felt like, for some reason, though clearly I probably had. Uh, but, I, you know, I always went to uh, therapy from the age of 10 and got on medication and, you know, did all the things that you do. Um, I eventually went about 35. I got cognitive behavioral therapy for the OCD, which had been, and that was part of the reason I chose stand-up, uh, was because then I could be alone and uh, be with people, but the adrenaline causes it, so I'd be so excited that I wouldn't think of killing and raping you all. And, uh, all right! And uh, I felt safe. And, uh, how are you feeling? <laughs> Anyways, um... So, uh, yeah, so I got the cognitive behavioral therapy, and uh, at the, about the same time, I uh, got my dog, Blossom, who was a uh, quick impersonation. <laughs> and uh, she's a delight and um, elegant. And... Um, uh, she was my cognitive behavioral partner, because what I would do is I would stare at her, they do a flooding thing where it's like you're wor- worried about being dirty. Like, let's say you're afraid of uh, getting, you know, filthy with uh, dirt or whatever. So what they do is they stand you in a garbage uh, dump, you know, and you have to sit there and feel all the feelings. So my thing was that I was supposed to stare at someone I loved and think all the horrible things uh, that I was thinking and see if they noticed. And... Uh, <laughs> Blossom uh, never did it. She would actually move closer to me and then fall asleep. And uh, anyway, she was uh, really she's my best friend. And uh, yeah, I've turned uh, about 39 and um, things are all going well, swimmingly. And one thing I'd always told my friends was like, hey, if I ever start having a lot of great ideas and or terrible ideas and talking really fast, could you wrap me in a blanket and put a little feed bag of microwave popcorn around my neck, take me to Lost at Sea Hospital, because I'm lost at sea. Because uh, that's happened to other people in my family. And my um, mom, uh, who had been on anti-seizure medication for 20 years, went off her anti-seizure medication, if you know uh, about bipolar, that's now currently a, a medication they use is, is a seizure medication. My mom went off of it, and uh, for reasons unknown to me, and she uh, went off the rails. And uh, she started calling my manager uh, 20 times a day saying that I was in grave danger. And yes, that's true. Uh, there's an element of real truth in that. And um, so... Then, uh, yeah, I started doing well in show business. Everything's going great. I, I, uh, but there's a lot more stress. Uh, I bought a house. Oh, the champagne's dribbling far too fast to my mouth. And, uh, oh, I need a spoon. Um, and, uh, yeah, my mom went off the rails, and then I, um... And then I started, uh, I mean, then I started noticing, hey, I think I'm thinking about death all the time. Like, all the time I'm thinking about death. And, um, 
And then uh, what I did uh, one day, all excited in my extremely meaningful life of living in Los Angeles and doing voiceovers, uh, (laughs) I uh, forgot to... Have you ever done something horrible? Like you've realized like, oh my God, I am not the person I wanted to be. Like, uh, oh my God, I yell and I'm kind of mean to my kids and I'm not going to stop doing that. (laughs) You know? Or like, I'm addicted to methamphetamine, and I saw, you know, or, or I left my baby in a hot car. Or, oh my gosh, I think I just hit my wife and it felt justified. <laughs> Anyways, whatever it is, your moment of clarity. And um, what, uh, what I did, people may not think it's that big a deal, but I... Uh, t- took a, a ramp from my house to the backyard um, out because I was lazy and I just, my dog Bert likes to come in and, and tip over the garbage can. He was out there laying the sun and I had to get to a VO and um, of, of the four voices that I do. And, um, <laughs> and uh, Bert, um, so anyways, he, he was outside and Blossom, forgot about Blossom, that she would try to get outside, go down the ramp that I trained her to go down, and she fell four feet to her death. And, uh, yeah, I killed my best friend. And, uh, also, yeah, it's good stuff. And, um, but I, uh, and, and oh, I forgot to say this, that, um, I, I, because of addiction problems, you know, I'm in all the 12-step programs, the cults, and uh, and I, you know how they have to say you have to choose a higher power? Well, I chose Blossom. And somebody had said, hey, maybe you should have chosen something that would have a longer lifespan than you do. Uh, but, oh well. Um, so I killed my best friend. Also, on some level, killed God. Anyways, uh... At that point, I started talking a lot faster, and my uh, friends uh, took me the, uh, to the Who's Gal and uh, sent me in. And uh, yeah, so I spent a number of times in and out of the hospital. I, I uh, this this past year, um, I actually went and did a gig, and I <laughs> was like, I had to leave Chicago suddenly because. Suddenly, I, I one thing they don't tell you about the meds is that's always uh, when you're trying new ones of all is all the side effects. So it's like, do you want to be able to think or do you want to be able to talk? Do you want to be able to write or do you want to be able to breathe? Like it's aren't very you know like these back and forth things. And um, so I was in Chicago and I like somehow I'd lost all my identification and was bleeding. And I was like, I can't, what am I doing? And I couldn't talk. And so my, I called my mom in hysterics, and I was like, Mom, and she's like, honey, go to Delta. Get to the airport however you can. Go to Delta. Tell them your gold medallion. And tell them about your website. And... Uh, and I did. And guess who got a first-class ticket uh, back to Los Angeles? Because I am white and rich. Okay. Anyways, but um, <laughs> it's uh, horrible. So, um, anyways, but uh, so I, I went in on the Huskow, and um, I'm feeling better now. But uh, there's nothing really more humbling than walking around a cigarette bucket in a cement courtyard with a man with no pants and no teeth, and you're feeling so down that he looks at you and says. It gets better. I don't know if I 
believe you, but you're very sweet, and somebody's going to get an extra serving of Salisbury steak tonight. Um, so, uh, it's been a rough year, but uh, <laughs> I didn't think I could. I didn't think I could perform again. I was really freaked out because, like, when you lose uh, your mind, uh, and you have lost your mind, if you are thinking of seriously killing yourself, uh, it is. Uh, uh, somehow, I thought that was a rational idea. I was like, no, it's. I mean, it's clearly a great plan. And uh, uh, yeah, no, uh, you've lost your mind. But the great thing was is that I talked with some comics I know who had uh, not those issues, but other health issues. And I eventually, uh, a friend of mine is a friend of uh, Jonathan Winters, and um, who's a comic. Uh, I don't know, not everybody, but uh, so great. And uh, he's in his 90s now, and he said I could give him a call. And he's uh, has been bipolar, and um, that's what I am too. I'm bipolar too. The gladiator sandal of uh, mental illnesses. Thanks, Catherine Zeta Jones, and. Um, but I talked to Jonathan Winters and I asked him, I was like, oh my gosh, Mr. Winters, I just, and he's in his 90s and he's actually just changing medications again, which is oddly hopeful to me. And uh, I was like, all right, you keep, and he says, uh, I said, well, what, what do I do? Because I just, I just feel totally out of it. I don't feel like myself. I'm, I'm worried nothing, nothing's going to be the same again. I, I'm just, I'm just really, uh, yeah, I'm just a little bit frightened. And um, he said, "Well, you got a good shrink?" Yes, I do. I do have Dr. Woodall, Dr. Joanne Woodall. Okay. Well. You just keep going. <laughs> and so it has come to pass. Anyways, thanks so much. Thank you. For now, folks, this is Carrie Brownstein and Fred Armisen with a song called Portland, Oregon, You're My Home. Find out about our next live shows in New York, Los Angeles, and Albany, New York at risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget our fantastic deal with AdamandEve.com. You just go there. You get 50% off any item. You get three free adult DVDs of your choice. You just put in R-I-S-K at the checkout. Free shipping, a free extra surprise. Holy shit. Is that a great offer? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Risk Show. Uh, go comment on us on iTunes. You can find our all-star episodes in our shop at risk-show.com and learn all about our workshops, our storytelling workshops. That includes workshops for businesses. That also includes one-on-one storytelling training that I do personally, as well as our other faculty members over Skype. 
Learn more about all of our teaching and training at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk. Excuse me, uh, were you guys up there the whole time? And I went, huh?